1: I, I honestly, I'm proud of you because you came to a series on regret. You're either bold or a glutton for punishment or whatever that is. I mean, you came and you showed up, so you're here. So let, let's just dig in together. Uh, Matt mentioned it's going to be a series in Isaiah, and I will say this we're not teaching through the whole book of Isaiah, all right? There's no, someone mentioned to me last week, they're like, oh, I've read Isaiah. I don't understand hardly anything in there. I'm so glad you're gonna teach through that book. I'm not, like, we're gonna be in this for like four or five weeks. There's no way I'm teaching through the whole 66 chapters of this. But this is why this is so important. I want you to have a Bible open in front of you, okay? So just do this. Isaiah, if you don't know where the book is, just kind of open up right to the middle, and then like flip back a couple pages towards the back and you'll find Isaiah. It's a pretty big book. I want you to have one in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the chair in front of you. Grab that, that's now your Bible, all right? I know you can have a digital Bible, but it's harder to underline and write in your digital Bible, okay? I'm just saying. So I'm gonna jump around here in a couple different places. I I want you to take that and read this during the week. But let me start with this. There's a guy by the name of Jason Drent. Jason Drent graduated high school in 1996. A few days after graduation, he landed a job at Best Buy as a sales associate. Now, Jason had this work ethic that was ferocious, and it led to this. He became the youngest sales manager in Best Buy history. A few years later, another retailer snatched him up, recruited him, and he just started scaling the ranks of of this new company. Uh, His he became an executive, six-figure salary, had huge responsibilities. His ladder climbing moved him from Ohio to Illinois to Massachusetts to Michigan to Tennessee. And now today, Jason's actually, um, 43 years old and he's the employee, rela- he's head of the employee relations at a corporate headquarters in a large apparel chain. Now, by all appearances, Jason Drent's story is a story of success. He's a young man who grew up in having kind of a rough childhood. He spent a little bit of a stint in a group home, but he overcame those obstacles because he had ambition. He was smart, he had this grit. And so his story is a success story. But Jason ran across this article about this survey, and the survey was all about regret. And Jason recorded his own story in what's known as the World Regret Survey. You can look this up, Google this later on, not now. This is what he wrote. He said, I I regret not saving money diligently ever since I started working. It's nearly crushing every day to think about how hard I've worked for the last 25 years or so, but financially, I have nothing to show for it. Jason has a sterling resume. But barely a dime in the bank He has a positive record of achievement But a negative net worth Here's how he got there This is what he writes From his first paycheck at Best Buy He vowed to himself this This is quite a, uh, quite a, a vow Quite a, a credo for your life He said, I'm going to buy whatever I want As soon as I can <laughs> He said this, he goes I never really bought anything extravagant it was a lot of nonsensical day-to-day stuff, a decent car, some clothing. But he said, I had this big man on campus kind of pride where whenever we go out to dinner with friends, I'd always pick up the tab. Why? It just felt good to do that. But it was this. It was those small, daily conscious decisions that today actually haunt him. See, his story, I actually read this it was the opening story in a chapter called Foundation Regrets, and it's found in Daniel Pink's book called The Power of Regret. Now, if any of this series connects with you and you're like, I just need more, I need to dig in deeper on this. Not dig in deeper to regret, but in regret leading to hope, I, I would encourage you go on Amazon and take a look at Daniel Pink's book. I put his uh his resource in your notes, you can take a look at that. Here's the truth. Uh, we all have regrets. But not all regrets are the same. And so I'm going to talk specifically this week about what is called a foundation regret. And so here's how I'm going to approach this series. Every Sunday, I'm going to give you this, the research on regret. This this is just, it's not the Christian perspective. It's just a, it's this wisdom research based experientially. This is what people are saying about regret. So I'm going to give you the research on regret. And then we're going to take a look at the book of Isaiah about how regret shows up in that book. And then we're going to ask this question, because it does no good for us to just talk about regret. We want to take a look in the book of Isaiah about how regret actually turns to hope, because that's why we came. We didn't come Sunday morning to sit in a cesspool of our regrets, right? Amen? Come on. We came for hope. And so what actually is regret? Let's start with the research, right? Because some of you might think regret is just feeling bad about some decisions you've made. It's not exactly it. And, and it's, it's not always easy because we don't actually like paying attention to the negative circumstances on our, in our lives. But here it is. You start with this. And this little model will kind of come up on your screen here. It starts with this. We recognize the negative reality in our life. There's something going on in, in our life that we're like, no, this is negative. It doesn't feel good. This didn't turn out how I thought it would. And now, for us to start there, we have to start by being honest to go, you know what? There, there's something in my life that could be better that I don't really like it. But by the way, that's not regret. That's just a negative thought or being honest about our negative reality. Regret begins when you start taking that truth and you go back in time to see where you had a choice in the matter, <laughs> right? You go back in history and you go, there's a fork in the road. There's a decision that I could make. And I chose this thing and it led to the negative consequences. But that's not even regret. Here's what regret is. Regret is not just understanding your negative today and going back and saying, oh, I had a choice in it. You actually have to come back to today, to an imaginary reality that if you would have chosen different back then, you have this positive, like, oh, my life would be so much better if I, right? That is regret. And can I put my finger on something real quick? Your regret is imagining a better future today. But understand, that's just in your imagination. Example, you know what? My career is just not as meaningful as I thought it would be if I had only chosen to be an art major back in the past. They told me, just you're going to starve as an art major. You can't make a living as an art major. But if I would have just been an art major, jump to the, the present I would be so much more fulfilled and happy if, if I had an art career today. Now, listen, you're totally making up. It's your imagination. It's not reality. You don't know. If I had actually chosen to be an art major, maybe I'd be on the streets and totally poor today. Because your art ain't that good. I mean, I don't know. But that's regret. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at these foundational regrets. Because here's what we do as Christians sometimes. We just make this mistake. We go, you know what? Regret is just this. It's just sin. Because there's right and there's wrong. And if I have a regret, that means you sinned, right? Or let's point the finger at ourselves. I sinned, right? See, foundational regrets, sometimes they're not always sin. Sometimes they're actually just unwise decisions where we could have made a wiser choice. Now, foundational regrets, they happen in categories. Let me give you the first one. God or spirituality. None of us intends to be an unspiritual, spiritually immature person. But foundational regrets are this. It's when we make small decisions in the wrong direction. When it comes to God and our our spiritual life, none of us wanted to be spiritually immature people. But we built a foundation where we're like, I'm not going to open my Bible. 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 And there's just a series of decisions that we made. I'm not going to show up for church. And when I did show up for church, I kind of had a question in my community group, but I was afraid to ask it. and I was intimidated by people. So I never asked the question. So I never grew up to be this person who I think God created me to be. And it led to me becoming this spiritually illiterate kind of person, Where I could have been so much more, but I just made small decisions in the wrong direction. Sometimes it happens in in the case of money, like Jason. He saved too little and he spent too much. Now, not one of, I'm not saying one of those was a sin, you know, it's just one of those where you make small decisions that compound to this negative regret. Sometimes this happens in the area of health, right? Who doesn't wanna be fit and healthy? But we ate too many apple fritters, never showed up for yoga class, right? I've never shown up for yoga class, I'm sorry. It happens in the area of friendship. Everybody wants a crew, a group of people where they belong. We had our series of decisions, or small steps where we never reached out. We never took a risk, we never took a chance. How about education and career? This is one of the biggest buckets That people have uh, foundation regrets in. We wanna be equipped. We wanna be able to get that good job, but we're like, "Mm, I just never took those classes. I never put the effort forth. I didn't do the work. I never took a chance. So, what causes small steps in the wrong direction? Because doesn't it make sense? We're like, listen, this is where I wanna be. I wanna be spiritually mature, I wanna be fit. Uh, I want to have a a financial base where I have some freedom, right? I mean, margin is fantastic financially. Am I right? Nothing wrong with that. So why do we just not make the right decisions then? The research says this. It's something called temporal discounting. Now, I know that when you walk out of here, you're never going to remember that word. But you will remember this. Example for you. What if I said this? You can have one or the other. You can have a million dollars today. Or you can have a penny today. That penny, over the next 30 days, will double every day. What would you rather have? You want the million dollars? Or you want the penny today that will double every day for 30 days? Research shows this. Almost everyone picks the million dollars. And one of my friends, I asked them this question. They said, well, the truth is I take the million dollars. Because I don't trust you to show up 30 days later with the money. (laughs) So if you actually took the penny, let me just show you, after 10 days, you would have a whopping $5.12. That's amazing, huh? You're like, yeah, I should have taken the million bucks. After 20 days, 20 days into us, you have $5,242. And after 25 days, you have $167,000 and some change. And you're thinking, I only have five days left. I should have taken the million dollars. But in just five more days, that turns into 5.4 million dollars. It's just a silly little example to say this. When we take small decisions in the right direction, it compounds to not leave regret, but to build the kind of life that we're excited to live. There's actually this study that was done uh, in the research, and they just they followed a, a group of people all week long, and they wrote down all the decisions they made in a week. <laughs> On average, you want to guess how, what percentage of decisions people regretted making? 30%. 30% of the decisions people made in just one week, they regretted. I mean, the research on this is this. We all got regrets. So since we're all here together this morning, we're not going to ignore it. We're just going to admit, you know what? I got some foundation regrets. I've made some small decisions that have compounded to such a degree that I wish I would have a better future today. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to switch from regrets, research, and take a look at the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. Now, I want to give you a head start on this, okay? The book of Isaiah is a story of regret, but it's also a story of hope. You'll find a lot of words of regret, but some words of hope in this story. And some of it is this. You won't just find these small decisions that they made. You'll find moral regrets as well. You'll find some boldness regrets, some relationships regret. And the truth is this. There's regret because God's people rebelled against him like, God, thank you for bringing us to where we are today. I don't want you anymore. But it's interesting because it wasn't a one-day regret. It was small decisions that they made in the wrong direction. And we'll get to that in just a moment. The guy who wrote the book of Isaiah, his name is? See, there's some spiritual giants in the room. It's awesome. He's called a prophet, right? And the reputation of a prophet is this, that they always write about things in the future. They're they're future predictors. God speaks to prophets. The prophets speak to the people. And the assumption is that they're always speaking about future stuff. It's actually not true. The majority of what prophets talk about is God is saying, you people need wisdom for today, and so I'm going to speak to the prophet. The prophet's going to tell you what you should do today. It's all about that day. There are moments... Where prophets write about things that will happen in the future. And here's one key to Isaiah, if you're going to understand this. Isaiah writes more about the coming rescue that Jesus is bringing more than any other prophet. I mean, he's 600 years before Jesus is born. And he's writing describing how this rescuer is going to come. Pay attention to that as you read. So the original readers of this, they're residents of this town, the city of Jerusalem, and then the larger region of Judah. That's who he's writing to. It's that group of of people. And this is a people who they're rebelling against God. And so Isaiah is going to write them this warning. Their regrets, they're going to start with these small rebellion towards God. I'm just going to read to you chapter one, verse one. So if you have it open, take a look at it. Here it is. It says the vision concerning judah and jerusalem so isaiah is writing this he's saying listen i've had a vision from god god is speaking to me i'm going to share this with you that isaiah son of amos saw during the reign of uzziah jotham ahaz and hezekiah kings of judah hear me you heavens listen earth for the lord has spoken i reared children this is god's voice speaking i reared reared children and brought them up but they have rebelled against me The ox knows its master, the donkey, its owner's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. God's saying, you've taken small steps away from me. You're living as if I don't really exist, as if I don't matter. So Isaiah writes them to say, your little small steps in rebellion are building and building and building. And it's going to lead to this massive regret. Regret. And Isaiah even goes on to say this. There's a tool of this regret that's going to come in. And this tool is actually two nations. It's the nation of Assyria and the nation of Babylon. In chapter 7, it reads this way. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. Here's what he says. Here's what he's going to bring on you. He will bring the king of Assyria. He's a threat. The king of Assyria is going to come and threaten that he's going to destroy not only Jerusalem, but the entire region of Judah. Now, he brings the threat in this time period. It, it, let me just give you a hint. It, when you read the book of Isaiah, because I will tell you, it is confusing, okay? But you're just going to divide the book in half. Uh, chapters 1 through 39, it's all about Assyria threatening them. And then chapters 40 through 66, it's all about the Babylonian period, that where they would come in and they would defeat Jerusalem. And like many of us, when the pain gets great enough, we cry out for God's help, don't we? We rarely cry out to God's help right away. It's usually not our first go-to because we think we can do it or handle it. Or maybe there's somebody out there that can help us. But God's going to use the tool of other nations threatening them, one of them, the Babylonians, to conquer them so that these people would be brought to a place to say, God, now we've been making some small decisions to rebel against you, but today, God, we cry out to you because we, we need you. Now, I'm going to make this suggestion for you. If you're going to understand the book of Isaiah, there's no way I'm teaching through the whole thing, but I want you to do this. Google. It's in your notes right there. Google this sometime this week. The Bible Project Isaiah. The Bible Project is so great because I'm a visual learner. And if you're a visual learner too, there's literally these cartoon drawings that come up explaining the whole book of Isaiah. There's two videos, chapters one through 39, chapters 40 through 66. I would watch it and I can guarantee you this, you're gonna be overwhelmed by the storyline. You're like, oh my goodness, this is so much, it's so big. It's not, this is like way more than VeggieTales. Like I, I don't, it's a lot. But I think if you take a look at this, it's gonna help you. Get an understanding as to what you're reading. And so here's my invitation to you. Go watch that video. And this week, read a chapter a day of the book of Isaiah. And I guarantee some of you will be lost. Isn't that great? It just means you have something to learn. But I, I think, have you ever written, read Shakespeare? You're like, I don't even know what he's saying here, but I can tell He's mad. I don't know what these words mean, but I can tell there's, there's, there's betrayal going on in this story. It's kind of like Isaiah sometimes. There's this poetry and there's this imagery going on. And you won't understand every word. You won't understand every sentence. But you'll get the sense of, oh, this is bad right now. Oh, here comes the hope of the story. So I don't know. At some point, you got to learn to swim by jumping in the deep end of the pool. So my invitation is to start reading the book of Isaiah. It's the deep end of the pool. I do want to show you something, though. I'm going to switch gears completely. To looking at Isaiah at their specific foundation regrets. Because listen, this is 2,500 years ago that I'm about to read. And I don't think the foundation regrets in Isaiah have changed at all compared to our world today. See if any of these sound familiar. Here's the foundation regrets in the book of Isaiah. Small steps in the wrong direction. Number one, they took small steps towards other people's religion. And small steps away from God's word. This is what he writes in chapter two, verse six. You, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. They're full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. From the beginning that God took his people out of Egypt and brought them to the promised land, he said this, don't tolerate the religion of those other people because they're worshiping false gods. They're worshiping gods that aren't even gods. They're just something that they made up. And you have me, the almighty, all-powerful. And if you read Isaiah, you'll you'll hear this title for God, the Lord of hosts. It's like this, this almighty God who has this army behind him. No one can defeat him. And yet we trust in all these other things. And so they they started slowly taking steps in the direction of like, well, the religion's not that bad. Let's go learn about it. Understand that when they moved into the promised land, they practiced things like child sacrifice. Oh, that's not the first thing they jumped into, right? It was small steps in the wrong direction. Second small step. It was towards trusting in their financial success instead of trusting in God. Well, good thing that doesn't happen anymore today. Chapter two, verse seven. Their land is full of silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses, there's no end to their chariots. It sounds like a compliment. Like, wow, you guys are so successful financially. That's amazing. But it's not actually a compliment, it's a criticism. Because in the context of the story, God is saying, you trust in all of that, and you don't understand how fragile your financial kingdom is that you've built. But if you would trust in me, I'm going to actually lead you into a life that you want to live. But just don't do life without me, because that life is fragile and broken. The third thing is this. It's small steps towards valuing their work over loyalty to God. Here's what it says. Chapter 2, verse 8. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands to what their fingers have made. There's two problems with this. They're literally whittling these wood statues and idols and they're like, oh, look at what I made. It's God. God's like, you made it. You made God? This is weird. The second is this though. I, I think in context here, it's sometimes we today, we might not be fashioning an idol. But whatever we do with our hands, with our minds, with our computers, we go, oh, look at what I've made. We spend so much time and energy and value our careers and our work. And nothing wrong with being proud of it. We all should be. God has created us to work. It's not a punishment for us. It's actually a, a thrill and a privilege to be able to work. But when our work becomes an idol overvaluing our loyalty to God... This is what was happening in the story, and we know this. It still happens today. Amen? Small steps, number four, toward the insecurity of valuing people's opinion over God's opinion. This is, this is not one of those confusing sentences, Isaiah. It says this in chapter 2, verse 22. Stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? We'll get into this story in a couple of weeks here, where Jew, uh, Jerusalem, when their city is threatened... At one moment, they look to a neighbor over here, and they're like, "Well, this nation's threatening us. We need help from these people over here. Let, let, let's go see what they think. And all of a sudden, these guys are threatening them. They run to, to Egypt. They're like, Egypt, you got to help us. We have these neighbors. And they never run to God to say, hey, God, can you help us? They're so insecure with who they are, and they're so insecure with the people around them that they value what other people say as opposed to valuing God's wisdom and direction for them. Come on, doesn't that happen? Fifth one, small steps away from social social justice and caring for orphans and widows. It says this, learn to do right. I mean, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless. Take up the cause of kids who don't have their dad's protection. Plead the case of the widow. It's essentially saying stand by the vulnerable. And they took steps away from people who are vulnerable, to say, you know, I need to just focus on me. It's one of the reasons why we do projects in our city for people who need help. We don't want to step in and be the hero of the story. God's the hero of the story. But God invites every believer to look beyond our own needs, to say, how do we support the people around us who need help? It's one of the reasons why our church exists. Sixth thing. Small steps towards good times. you got to say that with a little attitude. Can you just say good times with me? Ready? Good times. See, you don't have attitude yet, though. It doesn't sound like you're having a good time when you say good times, right? Small steps towards, here we go, good times. And steps away from what God cares about. Listen to this. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks. Uh Uh-oh. Who stay up late at night until they are inflamed with wine. But they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. This is literally what it says in the book of Isaiah. In another place it says, some of you think you're champion bartenders. (laughs) It's from Isaiah. Listen, God created so many great things in this world. He just doesn't want those great things to take his place. Where we're centered on pursuing good times. Instead of the good God who created this good life. Seven last one. It says this. Small steps towards forgetting God. Very simply it says, Isaiah fifty-one thirteen, You forget the Lord your maker. Did you know this? That's actually the number one sin in the Old Testament. It was the problem from the very beginning to the very end of the Old Testament. And it's the problem from the very beginning of the New Testament to our world today. It's this. We just forget God. We don't like openly rebel against God and be like, God, I don't want you in my life anymore. We just slowly drift and we slowly start forgetting what God created us for. And it's to be in relationship with him. So God's going to bring Judah and Jerusalem to this place of regret. He just says this, regret's coming. You're going to face it. It's going to be painful. It's going to be really, really hard. Chapter 2, verse 11 says this, The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled. And human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and the lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be they will be humbled. And don't you wonder, like, so what does that mean? Like, what's going to happen to them? How are these people going to be humbled? It says in chapter 5, "...therefore my people will go into exile for lack of understanding." See, the book of Isaiah, it's not that complicated once you start paying attention to the sentences that make sense. Babylon, the nation is going to come in, defeat them. People will die and families will be taken away, moved to a different place called Babylon and live in exile. And then they cry out to God, super sorry, God, that we rebelled against you. God, would you help us? But see, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah writes this, Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they're red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." it's this moment where God goes, listen, you're not doing the right thing. You're you're having all these foundation regrets. But listen, it's going to lead to a big regret in the end. But I'm giving you the opportunity. We can change the direction of your regret if you start making wise decisions. Your mess-ups are like scarlet red. But I will make you white as snow if you will walk in step with me. That's chapter one. It's not chapter 65. Can I just say this? Before you get to a major regret in your life, God invites you, come, let's settle the matter, no matter how much you've sinned. Today is a day where you can turn it. Where you can turn towards God and say, God, yeah, help me. But here's here's what's weird about when we find ourselves in a hole. We've often dug it. We've dug the hole that we're in. And the, the crazy thing about when you find yourself in a hole... We think that we can fix it, but what we do is we just keep digging. And the the law of the hole is when you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. But this is the hardest thing about a foundation regret. Can we actually pause and look and go, you know what? To have a better future, I better figure out my regret today and look back on the decisions I've made so that I walk into a future with God that's better. Remember Jason Drent, the guy whose story we shared about his great financial regret? Well, I told you that was the opening chapter to this book I was reading on Foundation Regret. And um, the fact that his first and last name was in there, he was pretty easy to find. I found him last week. Called him up. I messaged him on social media. And uh, I got on a Zoom call with Jason because I wanted to know this. Did your regret actually turn into hope? Today, Jason works at a company and does uh, employee relations, where he helps 20- and 30-year-olds make better choices than he ever made. But I didn't want to just tell you about this story. I recorded our Zoom call. Take a look at this. All right, I'm here with Jason Drent whose story was featured in Daniel Pink's book, The Power of Regret. I've shared a little bit of your story already this morning in our church service. Um, What was the turnaround for you? Like, was there a moment where you regret as you were standing in it, that it it started turning from regret to hope? What were some of the the factors that helped there?
0: It really was a, a big part of the current role that I'm in and getting a little glimpse of the impact that uh, I might be able to have with other people uh, and talking about it and being honest about what I was experiencing and stop playing the day-to-day routine of acting like I had it all together and be honest with some folks. And uh, when that started to happen, you know, there's a lot of good that can come from those conversations and people relate to it a lot more.
1: So would you say that this, your regrets have turned around to actually almost open up a new mission for you in your company? Uh,
0: it is, um, again, the, the the featured regret uh, in the book is, is, an, is a common topic because uh, I think, you know, in our company, we have a lot of young leaders. We have a lot of leaders in our 20s and 30s. I think a, a lot of poor decisions come from short-term thinking, and a lot of short-term thinking comes from not seeing a future that you're real excited about. And I know, you know, for me personally, if I had handled some things differently financially and otherwise, uh, during those critical decades, life could be quite a bit different. And I, I kept seeing this very similar circumstances, very similar thought patterns, beliefs play out, and it was, it was hard to watch. So I got honest about it pretty quick and people were pretty receptive.
1: Now, I have to ask, you, you have a cross around your neck, so uh, I'm just curious, how is God a part of your turnaround story?
0: In case my mother ever sees this. Uh, my, my mother's the most amazing example of faith that I've ever had in my life. And I haven't always been connected with her uh, through no fault of her own. But uh, she has I have, I have a keychain that she gave me forever ago and that just says one day at a time. And it is a uh, she she believes wholeheartedly that's a biblical principle from verse in Philippians. And I still my that keychain is still sitting over there on my counter. If, you, if your faith is alive and well, uh, there's a lot to be excited about. Um, it, 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 as the Bible promises, it's, it's not a guaranteed easy street. But there is a real tangible hope, and you understand what that hope should be rooted in.
1: So there's people sitting in our church room right now who are listening to you, and they might be sitting in the middle of their own regret. It might be financial. It might be a health regret. It could be an education regret, a career regret, a relationship regret. Um, What's one word of encouragement that you would want to just give them?
0: When you start getting real about uh, what is done to you, what you believe is done to you, and being open with other people, I mean, there's just not much that can happen without connection. And I think if you move closer towards bringing, speaking it into existence, Uh, getting real about the situation and making it clear that you're at a point where you you might need some help, you might want some help. I I think most people will be surprised by the people that reach in and offer an honest helping hand of of some kind. And trying to do it on your own, is I haven't seen a whole lot of people do do that. I've seen people connect with others, build something special with other people. And I guess I can can probably get it down to two words, uh, reach out.
1: Talk about it. We all get excited about something, right? This is my last question really is um, we all get out of bed in the morning for something. There's gotta be a cause, you know, something breathes life into us and excites us. Um, What's the thing that just gets you pumped up about your life right now and uh, and the difference that you get to make?
0: It is when you consider the, just the sheer volume of hours that people put in at work in my current role, at my best, um, I get to be a, a small reason why their 40, 50, 60 hours a week are better. But I love seeing those um, moments where they, they, they might be really challenged by a situation. It might just be a personality, personality conflict with someone else. But if you're able to help them navigate that, put that stress behind them and see something that they can get excited about and, and, and get back back to being focused on the work or life or family or whatever it is, that's a, that's a pretty addictive feeling. So I I love those moments.
1: That great. Um, just finished with this thought, regret can't turn to hope unless we get real about it. Can I invite you to get real about it by doing this this week? Would you write yourself, um, a regret resume? (laughs) Have you ever written a resume recently? You brag about how great you are, right? Without trying to sound like you're bragging. (laughs) Would you write a regret resume? sheet of paper that says, these are my regrets. And maybe try and figure out what were the decisions that you made, these foundational regrets, these things that you decided that, you know, I, I thought this was the right decision, but it turned out not to be the right decision. And I don't say this to beat you up. Regret can't turn to hope unless we get real about our regret. You can't know where you're going until you admit of where you're at. And so I want you to get this. Isaiah is written in the Old Covenant. We don't live under that agreement, that contract with God. We live under the New Covenant. Can I read to you this? This is how we live with regret today and what God promises. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. And it leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in us? What eagerness, what earnestness. To clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. There's two kinds of sorrows. I feel bad about my life right now. And a worldly sorrow just leads to death. Like, there's nothing I can do. It's hopeless. But godly sorrow admits where we're at, and it says there's this repentance. It's a turning away from that and going, God, help me. And we turn towards him, and it says this. What does that produce? It produces an earnestness and an eagerness. That's an attitude of, I can do it differently with God's help. It actually produces this alarm and this indignation that, oh my gosh, the hole that I'm in, it's disgusting. I can't live here anymore. We need that. What longing, what readiness to see justice done. I hope you came in this room stuck. And as you take these steps, reading Isaiah, watch that video of the overview, write your own regret resume, I'm not asking God to turn it all around In this next 30 seconds I'm asking you to do some of the work this week Get real about it Because when we get real about regret God starts breathing hope Let me pray for that hope And pray for you God we admit that sometimes We are, we are difficult people <laughs> I admit that our lives God are messy And no one really gets excited Looking about regret Not me But God, you promised that the truth can set us free. And so God, I would pray for our journey over this month through Isaiah. God, would you let your word come alive to us? We know that you love us. We know that when we admit our regrets, that you have compassion for us. So God, would you use our regrets to transform our lives? Jesus, we know you can do that. And we'd ask that you would do that for us. And we pray this in your name. And if you agree, would you say, amen.